Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down box or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya here once again, of course, with Katie Goulis. And I want to, first of all, send my greetings and my thanks to the wonderful people way out in the state of Alaska. I was there recently giving some talks. Some of the talks were on the Eastern Catholic churches, as I do here on this program, Light of the East. And I had some very, very fine audiences and a lot of great hospitality there. And a tremendous exposure to the riches, the God-revealing riches of the, the terrain and the natural habitats of the grand and magnificent state of Alaska. It was really a contemplative experience. Even though I was giving talks, at the same time, I was able to soak up the environment there, thanks to the hospitable people there. And also want to thank also our parish there, the Byzantine Catholic Parish of St. Nicholas in Anchorage, Alaska, where James Barron is the pastor, and all those wonderful people there. So it was a great time there, really a time and a place to experience God in a very contemplative way. Alaska, highly recommend it. Speaking of experiencing God, we are experiencing another rich moment in the calendar of the Eastern Catholic Churches. Actually, this is a rich moment in the whole church, East and West, and that is this week's celebration of the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. Now, in the Eastern Churches, this is a huge event, and it's a big event in the West as well, but in the East it's particularly big, it's particularly solemn and very ceremonial. And the church celebrates this event because of an actual historical event. First of all, what was happening back in the 4th century was that Constantine, who later became, of course, a Christian, it allowed Christianity to be celebrated in his empire, which was the Byzantine Empire, which, of course, is the roots of my church, the Byzantine Church. What Constantine was doing was he was building churches over the sites of significant biblical sites. And, of course, the most significant would be where Christ died on the cross and where he rose. And he built two churches over that site, which now basically is one church. We call it the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the Western Church, calls it that. The Eastern Church calls the same church the Church of the Holy Resurrection. You can see even in how we refer to this church, this one same church over these two sites in different ways. And it sort of expresses the different spiritual emphasis of the two lungs of the church, East and West. So in the West, it's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. 
And in the Eastern Church, it's called the Church of the Resurrection. But it stretches over the place where Jesus died on the cross and where he resurrected. It's actually under, in a sense, one roof. It's a large church, but those distances weren't so grand. We sometimes think of those areas as so far apart, where he was on the cross and where he later was buried, but they're really not that far apart. And if you think about it practically, they took his body down from the cross and they carried it to the tomb. They didn't put it in a wagon or on horses or wherever that we know of, so they carried it by hand. So it couldn't have been too far away. And so you get that perspective whenever you visit there, and I highly recommend, if at all possible, to make a grand pilgrimage to that holy site, the site where Christ died on the cross and where he resurrected. So Constantine made these churches. He dedicated them on September 13th, back in the 4th century. But something happened around that time that created this great feast enjoyed by East and West of the exaltation of the cross. We're going to once again go to one of our great and favorite sources here, which is called The Liturgical Calendar of the Byzantine Slavonic Rite by Father Basil Sheregi. And Katie's going to read an account, the historical account of this feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross, especially as it is celebrated in the Eastern churches. On this day, therefore, the church celebrates the finding of the cross upon which our Lord died. In the year 326, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, St. Helena, then about 80 years old and having received some private revelations, journeyed to Jerusalem with the intention of discovering the Savior's tomb and his cross. Excavations were started under the direction of the Bishop of Jerusalem, Macarius, later honored as a saint. It was said that the Jews had hidden the cross in a well or a ditch and covered it over so that Christians might not find it and venerate it. Only few Jews knew the place of its burial. One of them, Judas by name, was moved by divine inspiration to inform the excavators of the spot. He later became a Christian and is honored as St. Syriacus. On the site indicated, three crosses were found. These were carried one after the other to the bedside of a worthy woman who was at the point of death. The touch of two crosses was to no avail, but upon the touch of that on which Christ died, the woman suddenly recovered. After this happy discovery, St. Helena and St. Constantine erected a magnificent basilica over the Holy Sepulchre, which had been found close by. This basilica was solemnly blessed on September 13th, 335, and on the following day, the cross of our Lord was triumphantly carried to the new building, where Bishop Macarius himself raised it to public view. The people made prostrations before it and sang again and again, Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. So that's a little bit of the historical background of the cross. There is, there's much more to this, but basically we sort of separate what is maybe non-historical to what is historical. What we do know is that the cross, the true cross, was found in the time of St. Helen, And it was raised up before the people as they came there in pilgrimage, and they bowed down before it, crying out this kyriereson in Greek, which of course means the Lord have mercy. And in the Eastern churches, what we do is we have this very elaborate ceremony, which presents the Holy Cross in the church, and we actually do the same thing that those people did centuries ago. We actually do what we call a profound bow. We bow very deeply before it. Now, during the Lenten season, we put the cross in the very middle of the church, and we actually come and prostrate before it, too. In other words, we actually go all the way down to the ground. But in September 14th, the exaltation of the cross, it's a very triumphant kind of celebration. And so we do a very deep bow and we sing, Lord have mercy, over and over again. In fact, it's many, many times, very rapidly, while the priest bends down, holding the cross, which is richly decorated, then he comes back up, standing erect very slowly while we sing over and over again this, Lord have mercy, this Kyrie In fact, Kenny will describe, from once again from our source, about this ceremony of the veneration of the cross in the East 
Eastern churches. During Matins, after the Great Doxology, the priest incenses the cross, specially decorated for this occasion, which is placed on the altar. Raising it above his head, he makes a procession around the altar, and standing before the royal doors, sings, Wisdom, stand up! Then, while the people sing the troparion of the Holy Cross, he incenses the cross once more, and raising it toward the east, sings the first petition of the insistent litany. The people answer, Lord have mercy, twenty-four times. Then the priest turns to the north and sings the second petition of the same litany. The people answer again twenty-four times, Lord have mercy. The priest then turns to the west and south, singing the next two petitions, after each of which the people repeat the twenty-four-fold Lord have mercy. Following this, the priest places the cross on the tetrapod and sings, We bow to your cross, O Lord, and we praise your holy resurrection. The people then repeat the same words twice. The cross remains on the tetrapod for veneration for seven days. Now, there's a couple of very significant points that Katie just read here in the ceremony of the exaltation of the cross in the Byzantine church. They're significant because they give us an insight into the soul, the spirituality of the eastern lung of the church and how we pray, how we approach God in our expression of God. You notice she mentioned about the Lord have mercy. In the eastern churches, we do a lot of repeating because it's a way, first of all, of learning, of sort of embedding something into our soul and also of proclaiming it. And we repeat it over and over again. And in this case, the Lord have mercies that she just talked about, the 24 times from each side, actually are done in a way that's very rapid. So it almost becomes like one word. It's like, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Or in Slavonic, or in Greek, kind of an emphasis on the first syllable, which kind of propels you on to the next. It's, it's kind of challenging to do. And what happens is it fuses these words almost into one. And this is a very significant insight into the prayer of the soul of the Eastern Church. We believe very strongly that when we pray, we pray unceasingly, almost as though we hardly even take a breath, like there's no break in our prayer. And oftentimes what you'll hear, especially when you hear a liturgy or services done in choral form, especially with some of the great Russian choirs, you'll actually, if you listen closely, you'll actually hear no break, no breathtaking, in other words, no taking of a breath for the singers, during the chanting. It's just like one continuous chant, like an endless, ceaseless prayer. And the reason for this is because when we pray in our church, when we worship, and we do so with our chant, we emphasize this unceasing prayer because we are taking our place along the angels in heaven. In other words, we have a sense of eternity or that which has no seeing to it. It's like a seamless ongoing, eternal, unbroken praise of God. This is how we imagine heaven to be, the ceaseless glorification of God with all the angels and saints in heaven. And so in our liturgy, especially in a situation such as the exaltation of the cross, we pray the Lord have mercy that way over and over again. So it becomes almost like one infused word. It's infused into our hearts and it's proclaimed to all four corners of the world. This is why the priest takes the cross and holds it up around what we call the tetrapod, which means four-sided table, which is in the middle of the church. And he goes around there and holds it up on each side, the four sides representing the four corners of the world. We're going to talk more about this grand and solemn celebration of the exaltation of the cross when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's Reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. 
That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. I am Father Thomas Loya, and I invite you to Tabor Life Presents Married Life, as you always dreamed it could be, a retreat for married couples, which is on Saturday, September 25th. That's Saturday, September 25th. It runs from about 10 o'clock in the morning to about 6 in the evening. It's a day-long retreat at the Shrine of Our Lady of Mario Poach in beautiful Burton, Ohio, out in Amish country. To register, simply go to the website taborlife.org. That's T-A-B-O-R, taborlife.org. Limited seating, register early. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Gentlemen, would you like to know what a woman's greatest desire is? I am Father Thomas Loya with the Theology of the Body Moment for the Tabor Life Institute. Women have an open space inside their bodies. It's called a womb. By its very nature, an open space seeks to be filled. A woman's greatest desire, therefore, is to be fulfilled through intimate, meaningful relationship. This is why, gentlemen, women need to actually hear the words, I love you. Pope John Paul II said that man is the one who loves, and woman is the one who is loved. In the order of creation, it is all about the bride. And men actually become real men by making sure it is all about the bride. This is because men have the same body as Jesus Christ. And for Jesus Christ, it was all about his bride. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org Welcome back to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, again here with Katie Goulis. Before we continue with our presentation of the exaltation of the cross in the Eastern churches. I just want to remind you about a marriage retreat that I am directing along with the Tabor Life Institute, which is on Saturday, September 25th. That's Saturday, September 25th. It runs from about 10 o'clock in the morning to about 6 in the evening. It's a day-long retreat at the Shrine of Our Lady of Mario Poach in Burton, Ohio. Beautiful Burton, Ohio, out in Amish country. For more information or to register, simply go to the website taborlife.org. That's T-A-B-O-R, taborlife.org. You can register there or find out more information. Or you can give us a call there at area code 708-645-0762. 708-645-0762. And again, this is a retreat for married couples from the Byzantine Catholic perspective, Saturday, September 25th. We were mentioning earlier about some of the gesture and custom of the magnificent celebration of the exaltation of the cross in the Eastern Church, where we take a very decorated cross and we hold it up at four corners of a what we call a tetrapod, and then we bow slowly and then come up slowly, do what we call a profound bow, while we're singing over and over again, almost as one infused word, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Or as I mentioned in the Slavonic, Hospodipomiloi, or in the Greek, Kyrie Reison. 
But there's another feature about this ceremony that's really interesting. First of all, it's the cross itself. The cross is usually made of wood, and it is decorated richly with flowers, usually with roses and basil and so on. It's very elegant, and oftentimes it's very striking. It has a real strong sense of something very, very special, because it is special to us. But on the cross, you'll find either the cross in the Byzantine Catholic Church that's used in this ceremony is a cross that's without a corpus. In other words, in the Eastern churches, we don't use a cross that has a statue-like image of Christ on it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just an expression that did not develop in the East. Instead, the East uses a cross that has no image on it, or it has an icon painted on there of Christ on the cross. And the reason for this is twofold. First of all, what's important is the cross itself because of all that it means. And so we are venerating this symbol for all that it entails, all that it means. And also because when we look at anything in the Eastern churches, any kind of symbol, we're always drawn to what that symbol means, what it stands for. In other words, it's theological or eschatological meaning, the Eastern Church kind of tries to usher our view, our gaze, as it were, from what is very naturalistic or here and now, to kind of, it kind of hastens or sort of goads us and pushes us on to look at that thing in terms of what it's pointing to, what it really means, its eschatological or theological dimension, and what's really, really important about it. And so we kind of de-emphasize some of the image on the cross itself. Now, the icon on the cross is painted, usually hand-painted. It's obviously going to be a flat two-dimensional treatment because in the Eastern churches, we do not use, for the most part, three-dimensional artwork because the third dimension is how we see and experience things on this earth. And so the Eastern church tries to, as I said, to usher our gaze towards the next life, which is sort of dimensionless or kind of eternal and timeless. And so we just use the two-dimension, and we even do little tricks with the two-dimension, like inverting the perspective and so on. So there's a specific reason why the particular cross is used this way in the ceremony of the Byzantine Church on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. But there's something else that we do. In the Eastern churches, our prayer is our chant, and our chant is our prayer. And our prayer oftentimes are words or images from the scripture that are put together in a poetic theological fashion. And this is what we chant or proclaim. And in the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, what we do is we reach into a technique that is very prominent in Eastern churches, which is called allegorical typology. I know it's a big word, but what it means is we look at images in the Bible from the very beginning, all the way through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and we see in them their foreshadowing, their quality to foreshadow or to point to what is later realized in Christ. In other words, the whole Old Testament is all about Christ and the mother of God. It's just filled with what we call allegorical typology. And we're going to give you an example. Katie's going to read a few of the chants from the matin service, the morning prayer service of the Byzantine church for the exaltation of the cross. This first chant is based upon Exodus chapter 17, verses 10 through 14. When the Israelites battled against Amalek, Moses stood between the two men of God, thereby prefiguring in his person the undefiled passion. He raised a standard of victory by forming a cross with his outstretched hands. Through this sign, the power of Amalek was overthrown. Therefore, let us praise Christ our God, for he has been glorified. This next chant is based upon Numbers chapter 17, verse 8. When the rod of Aaron budded, 
it made known who was to be priest. It was an image of this mystery likewise in the church that formerly was barren, the wood of the cross has now blossomed, endowing her with steadfastness and might. This passage is based upon Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. When the rock was struck and gushed forth water for a calloused and disobedient people, it manifested the mystery of the church chosen by God, for the cross is her steadfastness and might. And this last chant is based upon the second book of Kings, chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. In the days of old, a sharp axe fell into the deep waters of the Jordan. The axe was returned when a stick of wood was thrown into the waters. This prefigured the cutting down of error by the cross and baptism. Now you notice from these passages that Katie just read, and again, these are chanted according to the ancient chant, but she read the texts that are chanted. Whenever you have anything in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that has to do with wood or something coming from a rock, especially water from a rock, or anything that is in the form of a cross. In other words, the way Moses held his arms outstretched, and it resulted in victory. Anytime you have those kinds of images, the church, especially the Eastern church, has seen in that the prefiguring of what would later become the cross of Jesus Christ, and Christ's victory over death by way of this cross. And so we go back liturgically into the Old Testament in the Eastern churches, and we look through, we kind of wade through it and walk through it, and we try to pick out all this colorful imagery, which means more than it seems to mean on the surface. It's always pointing to an ultimate fulfillment or an archetype, and that archetype is always going to have something to do with Jesus Christ and his most blessed mother. There's another use of the Bible from the Eastern churches, and it comes through our liturgy. So our liturgy is very integrated. In other words, the ritual, the things that we use, our gestures, the chants, the liturgical text, and the scripture are all kind of wedded together. One sort of expresses the other. It's a very integrated approach, which is one of those gifts, as I call them, of the Eastern churches, and that is a very integrated church, a very integrated approach to worship. In other words, all things kind of line up together. They all kind of fit together. There's another dimension to our observance of the cross in the Eastern churches, and that is the spirituality of the cross, the way we approach it. You'll notice that when Katie read some of the text, she said something that was kind of paradoxical, and it's a repeated theme that we say on this feast day. She said, we bow to your cross, O Lord, and we praise your holy resurrection. In other words, the cross and all that it meant, you know, death and crucifixion, all that ugly stuff, is said in the same breath with positive things or glorious things or hopeful things or victorious things. Death and resurrection are always said in the same breath. In other words, in the Eastern churches, we're very, very strong on the sort of the union of paradox or complementarity, where we can speak about the cross and what happened there, yet at the same time, what seems to be the opposite. We can speak about death and life all at the same time. And observing the cross this way becomes a very vital dimension of spirituality, something that I believe is very much needed in our culture today. And that's a spirituality of this paradox and of integration where something is both and. Life is lived in the both and. In other words, we cannot get to resurrection. We cannot get to victory. We cannot become the best versions and full versions of ourselves unless at the same time we embrace the cross. So the cross becomes this ugly thing and this joyful thing all in the same breath. Now, how could that be? We don't know, but it's a mystery, which of course we love in the Eastern Church. A mystery is something revealed, something hidden, and the two once again converge. They go together and life is lived best in that conversion. So we look at the cross certainly as an instrument of death 
and of shame and of suffering, but it now becomes this instrument of joy, of passage, of victory, and we proclaim it that way. And so we wear the cross, we venerate the cross. In the Eastern churches, we have many different styles of crosses, all of which proclaim not only the death and resurrection of Christ, but also they make us mindful by the way they're designed of the Holy Trinity. Because as we sing in our liturgy, it is the Trinity that saved us. Salvation is the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. Well, thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya here with Katie Goulis today on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois 60491. That's Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. (laughs) 